Thanks for pressing play. Dr. Avi Loeb is the most credential scientist and astronomer ever to say that we've been visited by something outside of our galaxy that is alien in nature. In 2021, Harvard's top astronomer, Professor Loeb, published a book called Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. And uh, I think it's a game changer for, for humanity. And it's been on a lot of uh, kind of most compelling books to read type lists of late. He was with us back on episode 202. If you're a regular listener, you remember that episode for sure. If you haven't heard it, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to it. On that episode, we dig into his book. On this episode, we have a very far-reaching uh, conversation. Uh, Professor Loeb tells us why you can't use the internet without using quantum mechanics, about the connection between theoretical physics and Bernie Madoff. And by the way, if you want to dig into Bernie Madoff, go back to episode 217 with the legendary author Jim Campbell. Professor Loeb also kind of gives us an update on uh, how his work and himself have taken such ridicule for saying what he said in the scientific community. And if you've been paying attention at all to UFOs, Dr. Loeb unpacks what he thinks the U.S. government's latest disclosures on the existence of UFOs really mean. We also have a conversation about the fact that most of the universe we don't understand and how scientists are searching to understand this thing called dark matter, why Galileo would have been canceled on Twitter, <laughs> And how it can be true that there are more planets like Earth in the universe than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. Dr. Loeb further tells us why scientists should act more like children and the power of taking personal risk to drive dialogue and discourse. In 2012, Time magazine selected uh, Avi Loeb as one of the 25 most influential people in space. And if you care about real thinking... The universe, space, and extraterrestrials, you're going to love everything about this dialogue with Professor Avi Loeb. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different. And my friends at Splunk are the world's leaders in uh, data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. And my good friends at NetSuite uh, are the platform for your business. NetSuite by Oracle is the foundation you need to build the legendary business that you want in the future. Visit netsuite.com slash different today. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Dr. Loeb, it is an absolute pleasure to have you back again. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. And um, there are many uh, 60 billion questions I have for you. <laughs> but before I get... Of, uh, less than the number of planets in the Milky Way galaxy. That's not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but before I start, I'm curious, is there anything specific that's on your mind right now? Uh, yes. I would like to understand the nature of these unidentified phenomena uh near earth and uh, i want to do it through a scientific experiment and i don't want to rely on politicians you know they we rely on politicians on policy matters but on science matters uh, we should rely on evidence uh, it's not up to politicians to tell us what we see in the sky 
I, I couldn't agree more. And with no disrespect to, say, for example, Marco Rubio, why is he telling me about uh, UFOs? I, I want to talk to somebody like yourself about this. Yeah, the reason is simple. Uh, the data that was collected so far was uh, uh, assembled with uh, sensors that are many of which are are classified, and uh, obviously for national security reasons, the uh, facilities used to to detect those uh, pieces of evidence uh, are not disclosed, and and the data associated with them, most of it is. Uh, not uh, visible to us. Uh, it's classified and only a small fraction is open to the public. And the report that was delivered to Congress by intelligence agencies and the Pentagon obviously talks in general terms, but doesn't give us all the meat, so to speak, the classified data that appears to be quite convincing to the level that uh, former CIA directors, Brennan and Woolsey, former President Barack Obama, talked about it as a very serious matter. And, you know, these are serious people and they had access to the classified information. They talk about it seriously, but they cannot really assess the nature of this phenomenon. And uh, because they were trained as either politicians or administrators. And, you know, when you go to a shoemaker, you don't expect the shoemaker to make you to bake you a cake. I mean, it makes no sense for them to make statements that uh, are scientific. <laughs> oh, I love hanging out in your brain. Uh, so if I'm to read some of these reports in the media correctly, and please educate me, uh, the government of the United States has come out and said that there are, quote, 120 unexplained objects observed by the Air Force and Navy over the past 20 years that cannot be accounted for. Am, am I understanding this correctly? Well, a little more, but the point is uh, they also make the statement that the, there are many more uh, events uh, but they were not reported because of the stigma. I mean, the report explicitly says that, that people were afraid of talking about it because they are worried about their reputation. And uh, there was a taboo on discussing uh, unusual uh, phenomena. And by the way, I mean, this is really strange to me because I wrote the Scientific American essay yesterday uh, with the title, Why is anomalous evidence so unpopular? I mean, to me, it's really strange because if you look at the history of science, um, most of the progress was a result of anomalies, experimental anomalies. We saw something that we didn't expect. We learned something new about nature. What you need to, of course, verify is that the evidence is robust. But if it's robust, then nature is telling you, you didn't really understand me. Uh, here is something new that you have to figure out. And that's what happened a century ago with quantum mechanics. Nobody expected it. Then it came along through experiments. And Albert Einstein resisted the notion that it brings something new. He said, uh, well, this spooky action at a distance makes no sense. He wrote papers about disproving it, but he was wrong. And we know from experiments that were done later that quantum mechanics does have spooky action at a distance. It's called entanglement. And uh, moreover, you know, a century later, we don't really understand uh, the meaning of quantum mechanics. It's still like a, a bone in our throat uh, in a way because we tend to think in classical terms, not in terms of quantum mechanics. But who cares? That's uh, Quantum mechanics describes reality and that's what matters. And we build instruments, you know, all the electronics, the way that, that we communicate, the two of us, uh, is 
founded on the principles of quantum mechanics. There are lots of devices along the way between my office and your office that are using quantum mechanics to allow us to converse with each other. And uh, it works. So quantum mechanics is definitely a facet of reality. We know that we use it and so forth, but we don't fully understand it. And nature is under no obligation uh, to, you know, uh, um, under no contract to make itself uh, agree with our preconceptions. So every now and then we find an, some ev evidence that we were wrong in the way we think about reality. You know, Galileo found it and then he reported back and then the philosopher said, forget about what, <laughs> uh, forget about uh, the fact that the uh, earth moves around the sun. Actually, we know that the sun moves around the earth. Therefore, you will be in house arrest so that other people will not hear your message. And what did that accomplish? They didn't look through his telescope. They remained ignorant. The earth continued to move around the sun. It didn't change anything except maintain their ignorance. And that's unfortunate because if you are ignorant about reality, you are not adapting to it properly. When we understand that the earth moves around the sun, we can think about going into space and building satellites around the earth. I mean, we have a better sense of reality. And that is true also about neighbors. You know, if whether we look through the window or not doesn't really make our neighbors go away, right? So if we um, argue we need extraordinary evidence to uh, consider the possibility of extraterrestrial uh, intelligence out there, and until then, we will not even allow that to be discussed. Then, of course, you know, we will maintain our ignorance. We will not look through our window. We will not find the neighbors. But one day, guess what? One day we will hear a knock on the door. That will be extraordinary evidence at last. But we will not be prepared. We will not know what to do. And I say, why not look through the window? Let's just collect evidence and let the evidence guide us. So if we see something unusual, let's figure it out. Instead of sending tweets and ridiculing and making jokes about it, that makes zero sense given that we are in the 21st century. You know, Galileo, if he was today, would have been canceled on social media. But uh, that didn't, wouldn't make his argument go away. It would just make other people comfortable. And one lesson we should learn from history is that reality doesn't care whether we ignore it. <laughs> There's so much there. I, I want to get into a lot of it, but it would be too much for me to pass the fact that quantum mechanics is critical for podcasting. So could you just give me a, a few moments on why we're using uh, quantum mechanics right now? Oh, yeah. And, uh, almost every device that you see in front of you and along the way is based on quantum mechanics because, um, for example, uh, uh, the way that electrons uh, move in a wire uh, that connects your speakers to your uh, computer, the way that the computer works is uh, through quantum mechanics. There are many elements within your computer that are based on quantum processes, and we can go into them, but uh, some of them involve... Uh, you know, quantum jumps across a gap in a solid state crystal or, uh, or you know, all kind of photoelectric effect or all kinds of um, uh, quantum effects that were discovered along uh, over the past century. And they are used in electronic devices uh, routinely and Nobel Prizes were awarded for some of them. And uh, it's, uh, you know, we can spend an hour talking about all these processes. And it's clear that 
nature uh, or reality is quantum mechanical fundamentally. And we can approximate it as classical, as if objects follow deterministic trajectories or uh, as if classical physics describes an object that it's not at, at different places at the same time. We can do that only for big objects and quantum mechanics admits that big objects and that carry a lot of mass and they can be approximated as if they follow a definite path. But once you go to electrons or atoms, small objects, the description that is appropriate for them is that they are not localized. Uh, they are not uh, having a particular velocity. They have a probability distribution of occupying different states and and uh, therefore, they do not behave classically. And, uh, you know, it, it, reality is different than uh, we, we see it in our daily life. And that's some, you know, we need to have a sense of modesty that, you know, that there is something more important than, than our ego. You know, obviously, it's, it flatters our ego to always be in the comfort zone where we say we pretty much know everything that will come along the way from our past experience. That is a comfortable position, but it's not necessarily the correct position. We should start from a sense of humility, modesty. Let's allow nature to educate us by collecting evidence, not by sitting in our armchair and saying, okay, we can figure out string theory that describes quantum mechanics and gravity without any contact with experiments because we are smart enough and we can give each other awards and convince a thousand people that we are right, which is pretty much what happens in theoretical physics. No, that's not the right path. The right path is to let experiments educate us. And unless we have that guidance, we might be in, on the wrong path. And, you know, the, the best example I, I, I can give is uh, Bernie May Madoff. You know, Bernie Madoff told people, give me your money and I will give you back more money, irrespective of what the stock market does. And that was a very happy thought. The people that gave him the money was, were happy about it. He was happy that they gave him the money. Everyone was happy until they wanted to do the experiment, which was give us our money back. And then when the experiment was done, it turned out that this happy notion did not match reality. So he was put in jail. Now, my point is, how do you know if something is a Ponzi scheme or a good idea? Everyone can be happy. People can give each other a war. I mean, Bernie Madoff could have been celebrated, you know, drink champagne, be in parties because he promised a beautiful idea and everyone believed him. That is fine. And that can be, you know, uh, the culture of some aspects of physics uh, until an experiment is done. And my point is experiment is crucial. It's not a nuance. It's not something that you can say, okay, I can live without it. It's actually an essential part of our learning experience. So much there. So, so are you mean to tell me that we don't truly understand why this technology that you and I are using right now works? Is that sort of, do I translate that into layman's terms in that way? Or is that overly simplistic? Well, at a fundamental level, there is the question of um, how to understand reality in the context of quantum mechanics, because what you have is uh, always probabilities for outcomes and the, uh, Moreover, a system, uh, let's say, of that you prepare a, a, that can span a very a large distance. And if you do something to the system at one point, immediately it affects what happens at a very large distance. Uh, for example, if you prepare two particles that are 
uh, that know about each other as one system, and then you separate them by a huge distance. What you do to one particle immediately affects the other one, even though we know that signals can propagate only at the speed of light. And so the question is, how did the other particle know what I did to the first part? And, you know, that's a deep philosophical question as to what reality really is. And uh, it also has to do with the way we, we, uh, our knowledge is shaped by doing an experiment because perhaps quantum mechanics says something about the interaction of our knowledge with reality. It's not just reality. It's the fact that we are conscious of the fact, you know, that one particle is doing one thing. And therefore, immediately, it says something about the other particle that is very far away. And that is the spooky action at a distance. Um, so, you know, fundamentally, there are various uh, interpretations to quantum mechanics that were proposed over the past century. We still don't know which one is correct and whether we are on the right path. But um, it may well be that only when we unify quantum mechanics with gravity, with the understanding of space and time, that we will gain that more fundamental perception of what reality is all about. You know, there are ideas like the many worlds interpretation, that th these probabilities are that they represent different possible realities, and you just go into one of them when you do the experiment. So there are many parallel worlds happening at the same time. If that were the case, then, for example, if you were to take a gun and point it at your head, and just uh, do the Russian roulette uh, experiment, you pull the trigger and you will always find yourself alive because fundamentally quantum mechanics would say there is always some probability that, that the bullet will not be fired. Even if it was supposed to be fired, there is a non-zero probability that it will not. And therefore you will always live in that world where you are alive. Obviously, if you die in other worlds, you would never notice that because you are not around anymore after that. So um, I, I don't recommend that experiment, by the way, uh, because maybe the many world interpretation is not correct. I wasn't planning on taking you up on it, um, <laughs> but, but it, does, it does behoove the question, well, should I take the red pill or the blue pill? <laughs> <laughs> well, I should say it also, I mean, this interpretation makes people lazy because it would argue that if you fail in an exam, there is another world where you don't fail in an exam. Okay. So you should always feel okay because, you know, there are so many possibilities and, you know, you shouldn't be distressed that you're noticing just one reality. There are many more out there. I don't like that uh, idea, actually. It doesn't make sense to you? No, I, you know, I, I prefer to believe that, you know, uh, that we live in one reality and the interpretation of quantum mechanics implies uh, a, a, a something else, but not the possibility of many worlds that happen simulta simultaneously with many different outcomes. Um, that doesn't sound right to me for the same reason that uh, the idea that we live in a simulation doesn't sound right to me. You know, that's, Again, a lazy idea in the sense that if we live in a simulation, nothing is really real. You shouldn't be distressed. I mean, the only people that can feel comfortable with it are those that have a lot of money in their bank account because those that need to work hard to make a living uh, cannot re really get a good sense that they live in a simulation because they have to, to you know, uh, ad adapt to the harsh reality that they live through. And I just think that, you know, uh, reality exists, that it's not uh, an illusion. Uh, I mean, it's not, uh, 
unless of course you are high on drugs you know and that then you have an illusion but um, i think that reality exists that experiments mean something and that we should be guided by evidence fantastic thank you for all of that now so here we have if we go back to the government and some of the things that they're starting to announce and some of the things they're not announcing um uh, why do you think finally the government is coming forward and ag- acknowledging the existence of UFOs? Yeah, so I think one limiting factor uh, in the past was this stigma, this taboo on discussing the subject. And you know that's one thing I tried to change in recent years after Oumuamua was discovered, the first interstellar object. I tried to open up the discussion about the possibility because it didn't look like a comet or an asteroid, that uh, it could be... Uh, an artificially made uh, object by some uh, extraterrestrial technology because it was really weird. Uh, and, uh, of course, there was a lot of pushback, even within the scientific community, that you would think should be open-minded, but uh, there is a taboo on, on such discussions. Now, at the same time, in the government, um, they established, um, for example, in the Navy in March 2019, they established a new policy where the reporting on unidentified aerial phenomena was made uh, routine and uh, acceptable. Before that, uh, pilots or, or Navy people uh, were, you know, were thinking twice whether they should talk about it. And um, so there was this change in the approach of documenting these these events. And and uh, I think at some point the the, the number of uh, uh, documented events uh, became so apparent that uh, it was really impossible to ignore it. Now, there is, of course, uh, the, impo- uh, the important question of whether these represent uh, adversaries, you know, China or, or Russia having technologies that far supersede what the U.S. possesses. And uh, that by itself would be a national intelligence uh, flow that has to be looked into if that were the case, because we pretty much know what our abilities are. And if these objects behave in ways that are far superior to the technologies we have, that's a serious concern. But I think we also pretty much know that the other countries do not possess these te- such uh, unusual technologies, because um, otherwise you would find signatures of them in the consumer market. You could make a huge fortune out of them. Uh, you would find evidence for them in the battlefield. And we don't have that evidence. So, you know, we also have some intelligence about what's going on in other countries. So I think, you know, we if the objects are real and they behave in ways that are far superior to what we, we possess, I think uh, there are two possibilities left on the table. And I should say the biggest statement made in the report was, as far as I'm concerned, that some of the objects are real. You know, that's extremely important because it's not a smudge on the camera. It's not an illusion of a pilot. And the reason they claim that is because some of the objects were identified by multiple sensors and uh, infrared uh, uh, cameras, uh, optical cameras, uh, many people, maybe even data that we haven't seen from satellites. I don't know. Uh, so the point is, if you have multiple instruments seeing the same thing, it's difficult to imagine that there is some malfunction or some uh, illusion involved. And if this is, if these some of the objects are real objects, and I should emphasize, it's enough to have one object that is of extraterrestrial origin. In fact, I dedicated a whole book just to one object 
Oumuamua that was discovered in 2017 because it's enough to have one to change our conception about our place in the universe. So you don't need many. It is possible that most of the UFOs uh, have mundane impl- uh, explanations. And by the way, if, the, if we find one, it doesn't vindicate all the people that claim UFO uh, being seen because maybe many of those were not real. You know. So my point is what we are looking for is one or more, of course. But arguing that many of them are not really extraterrestrial, that doesn't say anything. We need just one or more. And, um, and uh, if, if they are real and uh, they are not human-made, there are only two possibilities. One is that they are natural in origin, that something unusual happens in the atmosphere that nature uh, you know, is responsible for, and uh, we haven't yet figured out what it is. And the second is that um, they are extraterrestrial in origin. And I, I would say both of them are very exciting. So doing a scientific research project that I'm very much willing to lead and uh, be, be engaged in, I think makes a lot of sense because it's a win-win proposition. We will learn something new, irrespective. And to me, it's disheartening to see a lot of scientists just dismissing the interest in in, in the report or in, in uh, these unusual phenomena and saying business as usual and making jokes and tweeting uh, to their friends. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. You know, in, in the 21st century, if you have something unusual that doesn't match your expectations, we should uh, be brave and just collect more data and figure out what these things are. Even if they have mundane implications, let's figure them out. So thank you for that. Um, and this is this mindset of yours uh, is something I deeply appreciate and have even come to soak in much since we last spoke. So in that regard, there's sort of been uh, two things that have jumped out at me. I remember when I first heard about your work, I, I almost fell over and I said, well, why isn't this front page news everywhere? Why aren't you on every major media outlet? And then, and then your book came out and you came on my podcast and, and so forth. And, and I sort of started to monitor the ridicule that you were uh, attracting. And, and so there's sort of two vectors in my mind. A, well, you have garnered some media attention. I don't understand why it's not much more. I mean, you are the top astronomer at Harvard and you are the first person at your level of, let's just maybe call it background to come out and say what you said about Oumuamua, best of my knowledge as a, as a, as a casual observer. Well, you know, you're not some guy with a YouTube channel in his mother's basement, right? So, so that in of itself, I think should have garnered more attention and interest in the public world, in the, in the normal world, in the regular world, outside of uh, your world, but inside of, uh, of the scientific world, you seem to have attracted at least as much ridicule as you have others coming forward to, to have interest. And so uh, what do you make of the fact that the world is sort of, in some ways, making fun and or not paying attention, certainly in the way that I think that they should? Well, this troubles me a lot, and I'll tell you why. It's not because of me. I mean, uh, my my personal uh, fate is not really important here, but it sends a message to young people, and I actually spoke with a postdoc just before our conversation, and he was telling me, you know, this basically suppresses innovation, suppresses risk-taking for the young people because they worry about the uh, implications for the job prospects. So it basically chills off uh, the health 
of the endeavor, uh, the, the um, aspirations of young people to um, think outside the box, to, to discover new things. And I think that's a very substantial damage to the health of the scientific endeavor. And uh, just putting aside my uh, argument, but with respect to my argument, you know, I've been working on the first stars in the universe. I have two textbooks on that. And I started working on that when only a few people around the world were interested. And there was some ridicule initially. And, but eventually now it's a mainstream activity and there are hundreds of people working on it. The next, the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope will try to detect the first galaxies, the first stars, uh, sort of the scientific version of the story of Genesis. Uh, so the James Webb Space Telescope was pretty much invented for that purpose uh, initially. And um, it's a mainstream activity. So I, I realized that the early phase is always a ridicule and eventually it gets accepted. And I worked on other such uh, frontiers that I pioneered, the, uh, including mapping hydrogen in the early universe uh, with uh, radio emission, including imaging black holes. Uh, gravitational wave astrophysics, and so forth. Uh, but what's different here is I followed exactly the same practice. You see, I, I just basically made a conjecture, put it on the table, and said, let's consider it by collecting more evidence. That, that's basically the fundamental premise of scientific research, okay? And I got such a huge emotional backlash and personal attacks on this subject that I just cannot understand it because, you know, so on the one hand, the people, some of the people that attack me say, we need extraordinary evidence. But my point is, at the same time, the search for such evidence is not being funded. Uh, it's a thousand times less funded than the search for dark matter. Most of the matter of the, in the universe is not known. It's, we call it dark matter. For four decades, we've been doing experiments at hundreds of millions of dollars, looking for various candidates that were proposed. When I was a postdoc, the, the, the dominant, the most popular view was that it's weakly interacting massive particles. People said, we're pretty confident. We know what the cross-section mass uh, range of uh, of those particles should be, and therefore sh there should be experiments funded at hundreds of millions of dollars looking for those particles. Okay, these were funded, the search was done, and we didn't find anything for the original parameter space. And so we still don't know. So let me make sure I understand. Most of the universe is dark matter, which if I remember our last conversation is scientific code for we have no freaking clue. Right. Yes. And, and, and we've done all this research and over many years and many hundreds of millions of dollars, and we still don't know what most of the universe is made up of. Is that, is that exactly. what I'm hearing? Yeah, there is five or six times more matter of a different type that, than we are made of. And we just label it dark matter because we don't know what it is. It doesn't interact with light, so we can't see it. And um, my point is, of course, you know, it's, uh, completely legitimate to search for specific types of particle because we're searching in the dark. We don't know what it is, but that's part of the scientific endeavor, okay? And by the way, if the dark matter is made of weakly interacting massive particles, that would have zero impact on society, on the daily lives of people. But if Oumuamua was a technological relic, that would have huge impact on society. 
So how can scientists ridicule any discussion on that possibility and then fund a thousand times more the search for weakly interacting massive particles and say, of course, you know, that's part of the mainstream. My point is, it's not less speculative. And moreover, we know that we exist. We know that roughly half of the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation. So what we find in our backyard, the Earth-Sun system, is not at all privileged. It's not special. So if you arrange for similar circumstances in tens of billions of other systems, then you should expect similar outcomes. Why do we feel that we are so privileged? And, you know, one reason is, of course, because it makes us feel good about ourselves. It's uh, uh, flattering our ego to think that we are unique and special. And obviously, looking for microbes on Mars doesn't really threaten our ego. If we find microbes, we can still feel superior relative to these microbes. They're not intelligent like we are. But if we ever consider the possibility that there is a piece of technology that implies that there is a smarter kid on the block, that obviously is a hit to our ego. And that we don't want to discuss. And whoever mentions that will be banned uh, and will be ridiculed. Okay? So that's the, uh, the conformity. And, and by the way, you know, if, uh, for example, Galileo was today, he would not be put in house arrest. I mean, he would be canceled on Twitter. That, that would be his. Uh, so my point is, you have on the one hand this community, and then you have another community of theoretical physicists that talk about the multiverse, talk about exodimensions, ideas that were not tested and will not necessarily be tested within our generation. And that is still part of the mainstream. So I ask myself, how is it possible that you have part of the mainstream advocating ideas that are completely speculative, that, were not, that do not have any experimental support, and that's accepted by the mainstream, and honors and awards and... You know, everything is given to the people working on that. And it's a sandbox for them demonstrating that they are smart. At the same time, as the idea that something like us exists elsewhere is being ridiculed. Okay. And how is that possible? Because both communities have a problem with evidence. So the community that talks about things we've never seen, you know, they prefer to be in that spot. Because you don't put skin in the game, you will never be proven wrong by experiments. So it's very comfortable to do mathematical gymnastics and show that you are smart. And that community, that culture can live side to side with another culture that doesn't want to look at the evidence. So even if we see an Oumuamua-like object that is weird and doesn't look like any rock we have seen before, they say business as usual. So the common thread of both communities is forget about evidence. Fascinating. And, and, and a couple things that I ref have reflected on a lot from our first conversation. The, you mentioned arrogance, that we want to feel superior and ego and so forth. And I, it just rattles in my head, if I remember the numbers correctly, correct me if I'm not remembering it right, approximately 60 billion planets like Earth. Yes? In the Milky Way. In the Milky Way, and of course, there's much beyond the Milky Way. Well, yes. so there, there are a trillion galaxies like the Milky Way in the observable volume of the universe. So, you know, altogether, you have more planets like the Earth than the number of uh, grains of sand in all beaches on Earth. It's a huge number, 10 to the power 21. 
And there's, I've heard that expression. There's no doubt in your mind, professor, that that is not bullshit, that there are more planets like earth than there is sand on the planet earth. Yeah, that's not bullshit. That's based on counting. Uh, we just uh, check the systems close to us and we know how many stars exist in the universe because we can see the light coming from them. And so we just multiply <laughs> the numbers. And uh, the point is, it's really arrogant to believe that we are so unique and special and privileged that we are the only ones around. And, you know, my daughters, when they were young, they were at home and they thought that they are the smartest in the world, that the world centers on them. They made exactly the same mistake as Aristotle made, the, saying that we are the center of the universe. But of course, they corrected it faster than humanity corrected their, uh, its mistake. You, it took humanity more than a thousand years, you know, when until Copernicus and Galileo provided the evidence that the earth moves around the sun. But my daughters found it quickly within a few years because they went to the kindergarten and they met other kids that might be smarter than they are. So they realized they're not at the center. And uh, of course, the first day in kindergarten was very difficult for them psychologically, and they would have preferred to stay at home uh, because then they could have uh, maintained their illusion. But uh, that's exactly my point that, uh, you know, one way for us to keep our conviction is, of course, to remain ignorant. And ignorance, I should say, is just like the number zero. Uh, when, you, when you take the product of ignorance with any item, you get no content. And so by remaining ignorant, you can maintain your conviction because you will never recognize that you are wrong. Wow, it's so powerful. I, I, must, I must ask you a personal question. You know, I, I would describe you as a warrior, as a punk rocker, uh, as an outlier, uh, and even, um, and forgive me if you don't like this one, as somebody kind of giving the scientific community a big middle finger, um, because you have the courage to step out and, 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 and say these things. And of course, you're a senior uh, professor, senior leader at Harvard University. But, but all that said, what does it take and how does it feel to step out and take so much career risk and, and be such a heat for so much ridicule? Well, so uh, two points. Uh, one, you know, when I was uh, 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 drafted to the military at age 18, I was born in Israel. It's obligatory. I, I served in the paratroopers in the first few months. And there was a saying that sometimes a soldier has to put his body on the barbed wire so that uh, others will step through. And, you know, that's the way I think of it. Uh, I don't, you know, the, the pain that is inflicted on me is not so relevant because the question is so big for the future of humanity. So I'm trying to make the conversation healthier uh, and, and willing to suffer the pain. The second point is the pandemic helped me in a way because every morning I jog at 5 a.m. in the company of ducks, uh, birds, uh, rabbits, and uh, wild turkeys. And uh, I'm, I, I feel very comfortable with nature, you see. And I don't need to, you know, the one good thing about social distancing is that I don't need to listen to things that make no sense. You see, I, I just express what I think is common sense. And uh, I ignore, I, I don't have any footprint on social media. And I don't care how many likes I have on Twitter. And just like a basketball player, you know, I, I keep my eyes on the ball, not on the audience. And you can easily see those people that publicize or popularize science, and I will not mention names, but many of them 
are looking all the time at the audience. They're not looking at the ball and they're saying things that will bring them more likes on Twitter. My point is, in the long run, that's completely irrelevant. You can get as many likes as you want, just like the philosophers during the days of Galileo did. They got a lot of likes from the church. But that is irrelevant because if the earth moves around the sun and they say the wrong thing, who cares how many likes they get in the halls of the, the religious doctrine? That's completely irrelevant. Reality is whatever it is. And our duty as scientists is to figure it out and not surrender to social pressure. And it's really unfortunate that the scientific community, which is supposed to be the most open-minded, is not allowing that discussion. And, you know, the postdoc I spoke with uh, just before our conversation was saying, you know, I have second thoughts on whether that's the place I want to be. Because in the private sector, there are lots of companies that have blue sky research and open-mindedness that is even better than academia. And, you know, that's ridiculous because the whole idea of tenure in academia is supposed to allow people to have job security so that they can say what they think is right. That's why it was constructed. And yet people that get that tenure start to worry about their image, not taking any risk, trying to gain as much awards and honors and, and things that are completely superficial instead of being engaged in increasing the small island of knowledge that we have in the vast ocean of ignorance. You see, all the, the idea of science is to push the boundaries and take some risks. And you know, part of the learning experience is being wrong. Uh, what's so bad about it? You know, Einstein was wrong three times uh, during the last decade of his career when he was the most experienced. He argued that the black holes don't exist, gravitational waves don't exist, quantum mechanics doesn't have spooky action at a distance. So he was wrong, but that's part of the learning experience. And we should all be prepared to put some skin in the game and learn something new. And unless we are willing to do that, you know, the, the discourse in academia will not be healthy, will not promote discoveries. And as a result, we will be all happy, just like the people that gave the money to, to Bernie Madoff. So powerful. So is what I'm hearing you say, Avi, is that there's been a Kardashianization of science and academia over the last handful of years? Um, yeah, I don't know how bad the situation was prior to that. And I'm sure that in other fields, especially the humanities, uh, the situation is even more subjective. It's more affected by social pressure. But what I'm trying to say is that this is inappropriate and that's not healthy. And by the way, I, I was asked by the Harvard Gazette, uh, what is the one thing I would like to change about the world? And I said, I would like my colleagues to behave more like kids because kids have the right attitude. They learn about the world without prejudice. They put skin in the game. That's why they get bruised all the time. Uh, they, when they look at an object, they turn it around. An adult looking at the object looks at it from one direction and says, I pretty much know what the other side looks like uh, based on my experience. And therefore, the adult often misses something unexpected. And my point is, as scientists, we should maintain our childhood curiosity. That's really a fundamental facet of allowing ourselves to make mistakes and to make discoveries. Uh, so without allowing ourselves to make mistakes, we are less likely to make discoveries. Because you never know in advance, you know, you're going a path. We better take the paths that were not taken rather than raise dust 
in the path, the beaten path that everyone else takes just to gain uh, a reputation and to, to gain honors and awards. That, you know, that's completely secondary. And, you know, at some point in my career, I mean, when I was younger, I was very influenced by what other people say. And then I realized that they were wrong on so many occasions that it doesn't make sense for me to follow that. And I should just stick to what seems to be right. And, you know, and on this situation uh, that we are discussing, it, it happened to create some controversy, but it, it's not that I intended to create that. Con- it's just that the response of the community, uh, I think, was just inappropriate. And so maybe, uh, thank you for that. Uh, maybe help me. I have this theory that says thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. And that what most people call thinking is actually replaying somebody else's thoughts or statements in their own mind. Because when we hear something that we, and I'm going to use this word very much on purpose, like, whether we see it on TV or read it on the internet or a friend tells us or a professor tells us, whatever the case may be. And so we hear something we like. It feels good to us. It's probably affirming in some way. And so we replay it in our head and we call that thinking as opposed to saying somebody says something. We say, oh, that's interesting. I'm curious about that. Maybe doing some investigation, maybe having a discussion, maybe asking questions. And over time, landing on a a position or or a thought of your own as opposed to just the replaying of somebody else's statements exactly and how does that that sit with you yeah that that is called learning so that's what a student is supposed to do when uh you know you 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 hear something then you're trying to learn and one way to learn is to ask questions and uh, to uh, you know uh, doubt whether that is correct or not and and try uh, getting more evidence to figure out if it's true or not and then you learn something new and by the way, that is the Socratic uh, method. The, uh, Socrates, uh, the ancient Greek philosopher, argued that the dialogue is extremely important, where you raise questions and doubt uh, your opponent. And uh, that's practiced by many lawyers. Uh, it's called the Socratic method. And Socrates was blamed by the Athenian society for corrupting the youth and for arguing in favor of gods that the society doesn't believe in. Back then, Athens was a city-state. And he was for, he was put in jail and forced to drink poison, according to the story. And uh, if he was living today, of course, he would have been canceled by the Athenian social media. And you ask yourself, how is that possible if we value so much his approach how is it possible that the people around him wanted him dead? And, you know, that explains a lot of what is going on now. And, and, and you ask yourself, haven't we learned a lesson? I should say that in recent days, I, you know, received the uh, interest from wealthy individuals in supporting my line of research. And there are people in society that appreciate the values that I uh, preach for. And it's not that everyone uh, misses the point. And 
I very much hope, and obviously we ha- we are having a discussion about uh, technological relics, uh, and the, the public discourse on UAP is changed by the Pentagon report. And altogether, I'm hopeful that we will have a better future. And perhaps this um, uh, investment in the line of research that I'm proposing will pave the way. And one example that encourages me is that there used to be a congressman that uh, argued, uh, you know, had the uh, sentiments uh, against uh, legislation that will help uh, gay people. And he was speaking publicly against those. Uh, And then uh, when he retired uh, more than a year ago, he uh, openly announced that he is gay. And uh, to me, it illustrates a facet of human nature that sometimes the most vocal critics are those that are really intrigued by the argument and would become followers as soon as it's socially acceptable. Didn't Shakespeare say to us, me think thou doth protest too much? <laughs> so I very much hope that all these people that ridicule me deep down would be converted as soon as it's acceptable to discuss this subject and will become the most important proponents for this line of research, that it will become extremely popular. So one way I think about it, that once it's acceptable to discuss it, the funding for science will increase dramatically because suddenly science will reflect the public's interest. The public is really curious about these questions. And then a lot of young people will enter science because science is exciting. But if you think about it, how is it possible the scientific community blocks those gateways of additional funding and additional fresh interest in the excitement that science can bring. You know, uh, it's a self-inflicted wound. And that's why some people in the public uh, view uh, people in academia as part of the elite, because there is this distancing the, uh, as if the, the acad- uh, people in academia are on a pedestal. I remember our last discussion, uh, you had such what I found uh, a refreshing point of view about academia and science in this regard. And help me if I'm not remembering what you wanted me to remember, but that rather than working on something, coming up with a completely defensible answer and going, ta-da, that science should be open. And while we're asking the questions and we're learning things and learning sometimes to your point earlier is about failing and, and your point of view that, well, we don't know what a muamua is. We know that it's nothing that we've seen before. And so until we can prove otherwise, let's at least consider that it's alien because it blows open a set of thinking. And if we're wrong, like I remember asking you, what if you're wrong? You said, well, great, then we'll learn something and that'll lead to another thing and that'll lead to another thing. And yet so many people seem much more interested in being righteous about a conclusion or a position or an answer than, hey, fuck, let's answer some, let's ask some questions and see what happens. Right. And and actually, I should say that there were some scientists that followed the scientific procedure and they tried to explain the anomalies of Oumuamua from a natural origin. And all of them had to contemplate something that we've never seen before, like a hydrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen hydrogen the size of a football field so that you can't see the evaporation because hydrogen is transparent, the problem is that it, it, such an object will not survive the journey through interstellar space. There was a suggestion maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen nitrogen chipped off the surface of a planet like Pluto. And there the problem is the mass budget. You just don't have enough mass in frozen nitrogen 
in all planetary systems to explain a, an object like Oumuamua. Then there was maybe uh, the suggestion, maybe it's a cloud of dust particles loosely bound, a hundred times less dense than air. So that it's just like uh, very fluffy, just like a, a feather being pushed by reflecting sunlight. And the problem with that is it will not maintain its integrity when it gets heated by the sun uh, to, uh, by hundreds of degrees. So all of these suggestions uh, were of something we've never seen before. And my point is, if it's something we've never seen before, why not consider also the option that it's artificial in origin? And, and, and I rest my case since the community couldn't come with something that we have seen before explaining all the anomalies. And, um, and, and that also implies that we will learn something new no matter what. And, you know, the, the best way to figure out the nature of the object is to find another one on its approach to us send a spacecraft with a camera that will intercept the trajectory and take a close-up photograph, just like OSIRIS-REx uh, took a photograph of the asteroid Bennu. And uh, a, a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. If we had a photograph, <laughs> I wouldn't need to write a book. A single photograph, either of Oumuamua-like object or of the UAP, a very high-resolution photograph, that maybe we have for UAP and is classified. I don't know. But the point is, such a clue could provide us uh, with an answer. It's not a, a philosophical question as to whether a, an object is an artifact of technology or whether it's natural. If it is indeed a hydrogen iceberg or a nitrogen iceberg, something we've never seen before coming from space, suppose it is, then a photograph will show it and we will be done, and we will learn something new, that there are nurseries of objects we've never seen before that produce them at great abundance and that are very different from the solar system because in the solar system, we've never seen such an object. So you must admit that there are nurseries that have a very different nature than the solar system, producing a much larger abundance of objects than the rocks that we find in systems like the solar system. And... Somehow we missed it. So we learned something new. What's the big deal? Why not? Why say business as usual and say, okay, it's not so interesting. Let's continue to discuss something else. Fascinating. And so what would you like, Professor, the average person to think about when they think about this government report that's come out? Uh, when they think about your book and the, the discovery of Oumuamua, what, what, what do you want the average person to know about these UAPs and UFOs and all these things that we're now starting to talk about that we never talked about? Right. So my point is really simple, that it's not a philosophical debate. All we need is a high-resolution image of one of these objects. And that will tell us a lot. And let's get that image, even if it's some natural process, responsible, we will learn something new because we haven't expected it. It is not something that we see routinely. If it turns out to be the Russians or the Chinese, we will learn something new because our intelligence did not report back to us that something like that is possible. So that would be of major importance for national security. No matter what, and of course, if it's extraterrestrial, that would be a, a, a huge uh, piece of news. So the difference between finding something exciting and ridicule of 
of, of the subject. The difference is a high-resolution photograph. And all of us can understand that, and it's very easy to get if you do the search. The only way we can remain ignorant is if we ridicule the subject and not conduct a scientific experiment that will get us the answer, that will get us this high-resolution image. And you might ask, okay, is it very expensive to get such a result? I would argue that it's less expensive than the search for dark matter that we have already done and didn't find anything. So you can find the nature of UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena, by an investment of funds at a level that is smaller than the, than the funding of the search for dark matter that didn't produce any results so far. And so let's do it. And if the government is not willing to invest, you know, uh, I'm happy, you know, I'm, I'm in contact with uh, the private sector that with the hope that I will be able to raise their necessary funds. I'm not an expert on this, but it seems like there might be a few billionaires around that would be fascinated by supporting you. <laughs> well, I, I, I had dinner with one uh, last night. Well, good luck with that. And if and when you're ready to announce anything, I'd love to, I'd love to have that conversation with you. Now, it, it also uh, it makes me curious to think about, and if you don't want to go here, then just kick me under the table. Does this stuff uh, sit in a religious context? Is there, is there an element of not wanting to go here because in a lot of ways, religion tries to answer some of these questions about where we're from and how we got started and, 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 and so forth and how the universe works. And is there, do you see part of the, the, the um, uh, lack of interest in funding because it, it threatens um, some religious beliefs or, or is that not the case? Not the case right now. It was the case hundreds of years ago when Giordano Bruno was burnt on a stake when he argued that other stars are like the sun and they may have planets and those planets may have life. Uh, he was burned because uh, the argument that the church made was that uh, Christ needs to visit all these planets uh, to save the life, to save the, the life over there from their sin. Uh, and, and that requires uh, billions of uh, copies of Christ, which makes no sense. So they burned Giordano Bruno. Uh, but we, you know, nowadays when I speak with, uh, religious people. They are much more open-minded. They say that it's not a threat. If we find the extraterrestrial intelligence, they can accommodate that into the theological doctrine. And the, the best evidence I have for that is uh, that my book and my um, scientific discussion was featured on the cover of an Orthodox magazine in New York City uh, called Ami, of the Jewish Orthodox community, and when the story appeared uh, a couple of months ago, my colleague at Harvard, Stephen uh, Greenblatt, said, it looks like the Orthodox are more open-minded than your colleagues to this possibility. Wow, that's so interesting. And of course, it has been said by, by many, uh, maybe you'll tell me who said it first, that um, science and physics is sort of uh, an effort to understand the mind of God. Yeah, the, well, my view is, you know, when, when you see a building, um, you, uh, a physicist would look at the building and try to figure out the bricks that make it and how the bricks were put together and how is it possible that the building stands the way it does and so forth. And, um, you know, that's the way of understanding what we see, figuring out 
what makes, what are the constituents of what we see. And that's pretty much the, the role of a physicist. But the physicist will never be able to figure out what was the blueprint for this building and was there an architect was uh, or not or did this building you know came to exist um, just sort of uh, as a res result of some natural process or whatever the point is there there is a, a facet of of our existence that goes beyond physics and it's called metaphysics and that's the space where um theological thought can live without any confrontation with the scientific endeavor. And I think that the two are, can be complementary to each other as long as the theologians do not invade the territory of scientists and say, we know that the sun needs to move around the earth. You know, that, that is a mistake. That's a political mistake, and the, and the Vatican admitted it. Uh, and so um, as long as a religion doesn't say how the bricks are being put, you know, in, in, in making the building stand the way it does. But instead asking questions about why there is this building and why does it have this structure and so forth. Questions that go beyond uh, understanding the mechanics of the universe. So I do think that fundamentally you can have uh, theological thought live side to side with scientific thought because it asks different questions. Hmm, I see. And what does your incredible uh, history as a scientist make you think? And if this is too personal, by all means, we don't have to go there. But what does it make you think about the existence of God? Well, it really de depends on what you call God. And I have a hard time believing uh, out of modesty that that God really cares about me as an individual that looks over the over my shoulder. And if I do, if I do the wrong thing, I get punished because you see people doing the wrong things all the time and they don't get punished. You know, the, there was this Holocaust that, you know, two thirds of the Jewish population was killed, uh, in, in Europe. Uh, and uh, why would that happen? Many of them probably didn't commit any crime. And, uh, so the point is, I don't think that uh, anyone cares about us individually, but I do have a sense that the universe, nature as a whole, is being organized on a scale that is not to be taken uh, with a grain of salt. You know, it's not, it's not trivial because when I see the rooms of my daughters every morning, they look chaotic. There is a mess. So the universe could have been a mess. You know, the, if we look at a distant galaxy, the laws of physics there could have been very different than what we find in laboratory experiments here. But what we do see is the universe is organized such that everywhere, whatever we see, obeys the same laws. That's remarkable. And this harmony and organization of nature is something that I'm at awe with respect to. And you might call it a religious awe, but... It's also a scientific O because it's not, you know, it's not something that I would expect based on looking at the at my daughter's rooms every morning. So, um, so in a way, I follow what Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza, the philosopher, uh, defined as God, which is nature. You know, nature is so magnificent, so remarkable, so unusual that you can be at O. Uh, just by looking at nature and you can call nature God. You know, you can, 
associate the notion of something majestic with the reality that we live in. Mm, thank you for that. I, I don't know why it makes me think of this, but I remember a few years ago when I started reading some of the research that had come out on trees and how intelligent they are and how their root systems work and how the mother tree protects the child trees and, and so forth and so on. And, you know, the arrogance of human beings, we just sort of thought, oh, the, there are these dumb things that just react to the sun and water and they're there for our taking and that's that. And and now people refer, refer to them as beings. Um, and that changes our perspective, of course. And it just, so uh, when I hear things like that, I am in awe of nature. And if you say for a moment, nature equals God, as opposed to some Santa Claus in the sky, which sounds ridiculous on its face, then then nature has this organizing principle that that creates magic that that we stand in awe of. Right. And, uh, you know, one thing I recognize is, uh, you know, we are born into this world like actors put on a stage without knowing what the play is about. We have no idea. And the first thing we think is the play is about us. Uh, and then uh, as, as cosmologists, as uh, astronomers, we realize the stage is huge. It's 10 to the power 26 times bigger than the size of our body. So we are clearly not at the center of the stage. And moreover, the play has been going on for 13.8 billion years. We just came to exist at the end of the play. So the play is clearly... I hate to interrupt you, Professor, but if we get enough likes on Twitter, don't, don't, we, be, don't we make the play about us? <laughs> no, just locally. It's just like having a small part of the stage occupied by your supporters, but that doesn't make you the main player uh, globally. I mean, obviously, local, it's just like my daughters. When they were at home, they could live under the illusion that they are at the center of the world, but they were not really. And in order for them to figure it out, you have to step outside and outside of your immediate vicinity. Of course, if you always look down and never look up, you would think that all there is is what we find here on Earth. But you can also close yourself at home and say, I don't care about the world news. I don't care what happens elsewhere, I can just live my life at home. And guess what? Uh, what happens in Wuhan, China will come to your front door, even if you get your food uh, delivered to you. And uh, therefore, knowing about the bigger picture is extremely important for your sense of reality. And so one way to get a better sense of what the play is about, what the meaning of life is, is to find other actors. And uh, perhaps they had more time to think about it. They might tell us something that we haven't figured out ourselves. And given the number of planets that are like Earth, we, we are arrogant to think that we're alone, yes? Right. Uh, most likely we will not meet uh, at first. The first contact will not be with a biological creature. I think it's much more likely we will meet technological equipment. For example, an artificial intelligence system, perhaps even connected to a 3D printer. But we already have artificial intelligence systems that are that have abilities that supersede human abilities. And within a decade, we'll definitely have that. And you can imagine machine learning adapting to changing circumstances, making intelligent decisions, and it will just be equipment. We will see <laughs> some piece of material doing things that are really very clever and outsmart us. And we might even need our own artificial intelligence systems to figure out what their artificial intelligence systems 
are doing. It's just like relying on our kids to interpret for us content on the internet because our kids are more uh, versatile, are more uh, have better computer skills. So we might need to use our computers to figure out their computers. And so maybe AI gets us to understanding what Oumuamua actually was. Yeah, that's a possibility that AI systems will replace uh, scientists. And by the way, that may be a good thing because they will not be that emotional about their ego, at least if we design them not to be. So maybe we need a little more Spock around. <laughs> maybe a little less Captain Kirk and a little more Spock. <laughs> yeah, maybe th that. Um, I, I really feel much more comfortable with nature and perhaps with computers than I do with people. Interesting. And it's funny, you know, when you say nature, I think uh, my mind goes to trees and flowers and birds in the ocean and things like that. But what I hear you saying is uh, the universe itself is nature. Right. You know, I live not far from uh, Walden Pond where Henry Thoreau went and argued that it's a much better environment to live in than the industrial world that started at his uh, time. And uh, to me, the modern version of Thoreau's journey is actually into space, you know, just learning about other worlds that were not occupied by humans, were not contaminated by our ambitions, and leaving them on their own, just exploring, you know, just looking at them, to me, is fascinating. And if I were offered a trip into space, I would definitely take it, even if it's one way. You would go one way? Yeah, I would go. No, no doubt about it. Um, I, I asked students in my class uh, whether they would take such a trip if an alien uh, ship came over and suggested them uh, to join. And uh, they all said yes, as long as they can share their experience uh, on social media. And uh, I can tell you that's not a consideration for me. I don't care about sharing it. I would just do it for the thrill of uh, looking at something new. <laughs> Fascinating. The other thing I'm curious about, you sort of, uh, I want to maybe tease it out with you. It sounds like part of what you're saying is that entrepreneurs and the private sector uh, now seem more willing to take these risks and make these investments than governments and academia. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. On one hand, I find as somebody who's a champion of entrepreneurs and, and became an entrepreneur at 18 years old myself, an entrepreneur uh, really saved my adult life in a lot of ways. I find that exciting. But as a citizen of the United States, as a citizen of the world, I find it terrifying. Well, if you go back in history, you, you will find that many of the artists that produced uh, our most precious works of art uh, were supported by people that had a lot of money at the time. And, uh, and we wouldn't have those uh, creations of art uh, if not for them. And uh, so, but on the other hand, as you are alluding to, uh, we uh, know about that history, so we should have learned the lesson. We should have been more accommodating to uh, innovation, risk-taking within uh, our establishments. And uh, maybe it's human nature to resist innovation and risk-taking. And that's why establishments uh, become suffocating environments. And, you know, the whole idea of tenure was supposed to free people, but instead it didn't. Which also makes it even more fascinating to me that you're at Harvard, right? Because 
Harvard is is uh, obviously incredibly well respected around the world, but I think and uh, is not known or not thought of as a place that wants to take controversial positions. Well, you see, I'm fundamentally I'm the same kid uh, that I was on a farm, and uh, all the titles that I acquired over the years do not matter to me that much. Uh, uh, people that know me from childhood will tell you that I haven't changed much. And again, that is my childhood curiosity domin- being dominant. I, I wanted to preserve it. I, I thought of it as really the most precious thing that I carry. And it's more important than all the honors, the labels that I can acquire, just being curious about the world. And, you know, that's an extremely powerful uh, incentive to to be a scientist, but for some reason it's not adopted by my colleagues, and I don't understand that. Now I was also, you know, the chair of the astronomy department. I, I was not just at Harvard, but I chaired the astronomy department for nine years, the longest serving chair, three terms. There was never a chair that served for three terms. Each of them is three years, and 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 I think part of the reason is that. I don't manipulate people, you see. Uh, so people felt uh, comfortable with me leading the department for so long uh, because I'm transparent. I basically say what I think and what you see is what you get. And I'm not trying to manipulate anyone. Now, when I apply this approach uh, of a, a kids-like uh, approach rather than an adult that is doing calculations in the head and trying to uh, get to a certain point where... Uh, through paths that are not necessarily transparent. Uh, if, when, when I apply the same approach to the question of whether Oumuamua was a technological relic, it becomes a controversy. But that's me. You see, I haven't changed. I'm using the same approach almost in every facet of my life. And the publicity that I got for this stand, in the case of Oumuamua, is simply a result of the response of the community to the idea. If everyone else was driven by childhood curiosity, was willing to take risks, was willing to engage in a discussion on out-of-the-box thinking, then I wouldn't be special. And we would not have this conversation because you could speak with many others on the same subject. Yes, and bless you, Professor, for being willing to engage in authentic dialogue, uh, I find it fascinating that that this is a thing we now have to champion today because it doesn't happen. That you use the word discourse, right? But but uh, but an authentic discourse is a powerful thing, and we push and pull each other, and we learn and we discover new facts. And yet, authentic dialogue, true discourse, civil discourse, of course, is something that is not celebrated, at least in my opinion, the way it should be today. Well, it hit me um, really at, uh, fundamentally, um, you know, to the core when uh, both my parents uh, passed away over the past few years because, you know, I realized we live for such a short time and most of the time we're trying to pretend that we are something different than we actually are. And, you know, if, if we just strip all these layers of makeup, uh, what is left is childhood curiosity. And we often suppress that. We tell people not to ask questions. Just like Socrates was forced to drink poison just because he asked questions. How can asking questions be a crime? Why would that be a crime in the 21st century? Just saying that something may be one possibility out of several. Why would that be a crime? Why would that need to be ridiculed? So my point is, 
we live for such a short time. Let's be honest. Let's be straightforward. Let's just figure out what really go- is going on by collecting data and evidence rather than ridiculing each other and trying to, f- uh, as if we know the answer in advance without collecting the evidence and as if something threatens our ego and therefore we will never discuss it. I mean, that's not really part of the learning experience. We should be, yes. we should be, we should be modest and admit that sometimes we don't know the answer. Yes. Professor, uh, clearly, I, I mean, if, if you were my professor, I never would have left your class. And uh, I could have, I would love to do a, uh, you know, 7,000 part series with you, a 7,000 hour part series with you. Uh, but all that said, I know I need to leave you go, uh, let you go. You have a, you have a, a universe to go educate. Um, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Well, that uh, my hope is really with writing the book and advocating for the, what we discussed is my, uh, that the younger generation, when it uh, occupies the halls of academia, will change the intellectual atmosphere there. Because, you know, when during the French Revolution, you wouldn't expect Marie Antoinette to embrace the, the new principles because she benefited from the old principles. So whoever is thriving in the current culture of academia would push back. And uh, my hope is that the young generation will bring the new principles to fruition. Professor, thank you so much for your time. I, I enjoy it tremendously. You're welcome back anytime. And if, if you don't offer to, I may chase you <laughs> down some more. Anytime. Uh, I'd be delighted to speak with you again. Well, there he is. I think it's safe to say that uh, Dr. Avi Loeb is one of the most fascinating scientists working today. His book is called Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. And I absolutely loved reading it. Amazon picked it as a top pick for 2021. Now, make sure you subscribe to this podcast because coming up, we have some fantastic episodes. Uh, Dave Jilk, who is the author of the number one best-selling book, The Entrepreneur's Weekly Niche, uh, <laughs> Nietzsche, as in the philosopher Nietzsche. Uh, it's a great, great book. It's called The Entrepreneur's Weekly, and our conversation is coming up soon as well. Um, there's a book coming out that I think is going to capture a lot of people's attention called Thursday is the New Friday by my buddy Joe Sonic. And so he's going to be coming up soon. And one of my favorite conversations of the year is with uh, Joanne Molinaro, and she is better known as the Korean vegan, and she's fun fascinating and uh, fantastic. (laughs) And those are just a few of the guests we have coming up soon. Now we are getting back to work and to succeed today, you need every advantage. And that's where uh, Oracle NetSuite comes in, the world's number one cloud business system, including everything from finance, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more so that you can manage your business with precision. Isn't it time to upgrade from uh, spreadsheets and a bunch of uh, QuickBooks and spreadsheets all nested together making a mess? Why not build the professional platform you need for success in the future? Visit netsuite.com slash different for your free product tour today. That's netsuite.com slash different. And today, more than ever, legendary organizations turn data into doing. And Splunk is the leader in bringing data to everything, every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, and learn how to turn data into doing. All right, we would like to thank the legendary Professor Avi Loeb 
of Harvard. Again, check out his book. It's called Extraterrestrial. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. My good friends at One Life Fully Lived are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one life fully lived dot O-R-G. The incredible people at Bottleneck dot online are, uh, are distant assistants. So if you need an assistant who is and never will be anywhere near you, um, visit bottleneck.online today. And my favorite new drink is Malibu Milk. Milk spelt with a Y. MalibuMilk.com. Malibu Milk is the leader in whole plant organic flax milk. And if you're not reading Category Pirates, you're not reading Category Pirates. Visit Lockhead.com today and subscribe to Category Pirates. If you're like me, you've done dumber things with 200 bucks. All right, this podcast is a sole property in the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. If you're into marketing and you're into category design and you're into podcasts, check out Lockhead on Marketing wherever you get oddcasts. Um, clearly, this one is created in a studio that does contain nuts and goes better with libations and... We were never tested on aliens, but we are produced and edited by the goat, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, Technical Awesomeness, and Lockhead.com, built by Sarah Knox and Jamie J. Uh, show notes by GM Simon. And uh, don't forget to watch Star Trek, the original Star Trek, not all those other follow-on things, which I know a lot of people like. But I'm a hardcore original Star Trek fan. Uh, please take two podcasts and email email us in the morning. Uh, blackhole at lockhead.com. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Darth Vader. Sorry, Vader. We just ran out of time for you. Thanks for investing part of your life with me. Please stay healthy, stay safe, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.